0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Greg Burke, Chief Patient Experience Officer of Geisinger Health System, about a fascinating subject, patients and family members of patients who actually feel like hostages. But before that, yes, before,
1: before introducing the topic, which it's going to be a great one, we wanted to invite all of our listeners to attend the 2021 Annual Education Conference of the Catholic Medical Association.
0: We happen to believe that many of our medical professional colleagues, doctors, nurses, therapists, and others, as well as students, are aching to reconnect in person after a superabundance of online and virtual meetings. And this year's topic is the
1: joy of medicine. The conference will be held at the family-friendly Carib Royale Resort in Orlando, Florida from October 7th through 9th. All the rooms are suites, and there's
0: plenty of activities for the family to do while you're there. Our keynote speaker will be former Swiss guard and now dean of the business school at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Mario Ensler. He'll use his incredibly humorous wit and deep insights to share a story about the joy of St. John Paul II for whom he worked. I've got to say, I heard Professor
1: Ensler speak before, and he is a hoot. And not only that, but you do walk away with a new appreciation of St. John Paul II's joy. You know, And while this conference is especially geared for physicians, nurses, students, and other professionals who sometimes can sense a loss of joy in their professional lives, it's also for people who are looking for ways to not only rekindle that joy, but also to engage in new joy and for people who might be interested
0: in this topic in general. And even if you don't experience a joy deficit in your life, getting together in person with like-minded colleagues from around the country will certainly energize you. And this is a first.
1: Uh, We actually at the CMA believe so strongly that medical professionals will enjoy the faith, fellowship, and formation at the conference that for
0: the first time ever, the CMA is offering a money-back guarantee. That's right, Andrew. In honor of this 90th annual CMA conference. For the first time, the CA is offering a 90% refund of the registration fee if a first-time attendee does not believe they grew in either faith or fellowship or formation after attending the meeting. Pretty simple, pretty awesome. I remember after the
1: first conference I went to, I, my wife came with me and we were sitting there and we said, we are going to do this every year as our thing. And uh, <laughs> we, we have and we've loved it. So many people have actually gotten hooked on the CMA after attending just one annual conference. In fact, that's the number one reason people give for joining the CMA. It's a great experience. And if you're thinking about attending, please just go to the CMA website at cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D at
0: O-R-G. Yes, it is. And now we're going to move into a little introduction of this topic, and we're going to talk about AMA, and that's not American Medical Association. No, this, you know, kind of trying to get
1: at this idea that Dr. Burke's going to discuss with us is the idea of patients and family members feeling sometimes like hostages at the hospital. And I think for many of our listeners, they're going to hear that and say, oh yeah, I felt that way before. Because I think it's actually, although people don't put words to it, I think it happens fairly commonly such that there is paperwork at the hospital for people who want to leave against their doctor's
0: advice, or we call that AMA, against medical advice. Real paperwork. Yeah. I haven't been in a hospital in so long, but I haven't seen it. So how often does that happen, Andrew? Do you have any idea?
1: Yeah, I was, I was doing a little bit of research on the topic. And uh, this recent article I was reading, it actually happened in 1.5% of admissions. Okay. And so that's a significant amount when you think about how many people go to the hospital every day. And I think that would probably represent a fraction of the people who feel like leaving against AMA, <laughs> because I know in uh, in the times past, when I was doing a lot of inpatient work. There's a lot of times patients want to do that. We're kind of discussing with them, encouraging them, like, maybe you don't want to do this. It's not wise. And the study was actually looking at what happened to these patients. And it turned out that when they left against medical advice, they did worse. They had a much higher rate of going back to the hospital because The medical team identified correctly. They should not leave. They're not better yet. That being said, they were so displeased for whatever reason, they took it upon themselves to leave, even though the doctors wanted them to stay.
0: So if I'm reading this study you found right, they had twice the chance of being readmitted within 30 days of leaving.
1: Yes. And that's a big marker that everybody uses, the government and the insurance companies, because obviously the people paying for the hospital stay, if they have to pay for two hospital stays, it's twice as expensive. So there's a big engine on trying to prevent readmission, and turns out people who leave before the doctors say they're ready come back a lot more frequently. And so I think this is kind of a symptom of the disease we're going to talk about with Dr. Burke. It's, it's not so much the fact that they had to come back. That's obviously bad, but 1.5% of people felt like they had to leave no matter what, even if it was against the advice of doctors.
0: Were there any characteristics that were predictive of those who were most likely to leave against medical advice?
1: You know, I don't have data on that per se, but what what I've kind of seen is a lot of times it's multifactorial. I'd, I'd be interested to see Dr. Burke's advice on this as well, but just in my experience, a lot of the times the patients and the doctors were not seeing eye to eye for a number of reasons, but there was kind of a roadblock there that people did not want to bridge the gap.
0: You know, in one of these studies that you pointed out, I'm just looking at it, it says that... Um... 63% of them were men. So it sounds like, and I doubt if 63% of inpatients are men. Uh, so maybe there's something about being a guy that's more likely. It's, and this one's fascinating. 55% of them had Medicaid or uninsured coverage. Yeah. So maybe, they, maybe I wonder how much finances is a concern. Well, there's there's
1: definitely, I think, a socioeconomic component and maybe maybe even a health literacy component, as we would say, to the extent that they can appreciate exactly what the doctors are trying to do. But I want to make sure that we, we get to discuss this particular situation, but also a bigger idea of patients as hostages.
0: I know, Tom, you've got an excellent medical trivia question for us today. Can you lay it but on But first, us? I want to tell you, I have a story of where I aided and abetted a family member leaving against medical advice. Holy cow, that's not in the script. I, it's not. You're exactly right. Talking okay. going they, off they, script.
1: This is a big day. Tell me Tom, about it, Tom. Tom. It's going to be yes. good.
0: <clears throat> uh, our second child was born in a hospital that was so close to closing, the child was born behind the desk at the nurse's station, not in a room. And this was a hospital where my wife within hours of delivery was supposed to go get her own snacks, was supposed to make her own bed and then saw uh, a rat run across the floor. Ooh. So having given birth previously, she had me come pick her up, sign out AMA to go home where she recovered much better. <laughs> so you know, that that's my AMA story. <laughs> I, I wish I did not have a
1: family member story as well where uh you do I I, I do I didn't get Aiden in a bed but I felt like I was there <laughs> uh, where you know unfortunately it was just it was a, a dear friend of mine and their their child was in the NICU for this perceived lack of being able to gain weight um, ah. in the mind of the nurses and the doctors and my friend said hey this is my sixth kid I, I know what it takes to feed a kid his wife knows <laughs> what it takes to feed a kid they are not actually doing a very good job trying to feed the kid. And every time my friend and his wife fed the baby, the baby did great. Anytime the staff did, it did poorly. And so consequently, they were there for a week, and they're threatened with all this stuff. If you leave, your, your visit's not going to be paid for. You're going to have to get called on by CPS, your bad parents. And they're texting me. I said, well, I disagree with all that. But you are in a position where you, you can't make them mad because they do have teeth like that. I mean, nobody wants to deal with CPS calls, even if you're doing everything right. So yeah, I think this is going to strike a lot of our listeners. So I'm I'm excited to hear what Dr. Burke's got to say. But yeah, because I, I he's a listening as we're doing
0: this, and I'm seeing his facial expression. So I can't wait to hear what he says when he comes on after the break. <laughs> so let's go to that trivia question that you were so kind to introduce. Our category today is barriers to optimal patient care. So According to the Mayo Clinic Proceedings article from 2017 that spurred the idea for this episode, something called shared decision-making between patients and clinicians is essential for the best patient care. And one of the barriers identified uh, in that article to good uh, care is the limited amount of time physicians are able to spend with patients because of electronic and other documentation requirements. So according to a time and motion study of physicians that's quoted in the article, How many hours do doctors spend documenting a visit for each hour that they spend with patients? Like all these trivia questions, you're going to have to wait until the end of the show to get to the answer. And we're going to be back with Dr. Greg Burke on Patients as Hostages here on Dr. Doctor after the break. We're back with our special guest interview today on Patients as Hostages with Dr. Greg Burke. Greg is an internal medicine specialist who happens to be Chief Patient Experience Officer at Geisinger Health System in uh, Pennsylvania, headquartered in Danville there, Uh, but that includes 11 or 12 different hospitals. He is also Medical Director of a Nursing Home and Rehabilitation Hospital. He is also a Medical Ethics and Co-Chairs the Catholic Medical Association Ethics Committee. Greg, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Great.
2: Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here.
0: Hey, this topic, patients as hostages, it sounds like a lot of movies these days, dark, <laughs> depressing, and dystopian. I love my alliteration. So help take us out of the realm of fiction and give us a story or two to put flesh on the bones of what this is
2: all about. Yeah, I mean, I can give you more than a story or two. I think mean, one of my my roles as a patient experience officer is uh, to be aware of the patient complaints in the system. So we send out hundreds of thousands of surveys and we get reports back on that. But sometimes we get direct complaints where somebody sends an email or calls the office or, you know, interacts with a patient advocate. And some of those get escalated to my level where I have to intervene and meet with families. And I did that this week, for instance, met with a very unhappy gentleman uh, about his, his care and how he feels we dropped the ball in terms of communication. So it's part of my regular job. It's very sobering. That I do hear sometimes the worst of the worst. So there are, there are stories out there all the time, uh, and I think it's a minority. I'll say that, but but not infrequent where patients say, "I wasn't listened to. I was. I felt like I had to go along with with the rules and they weren't correct, or uh, the hospitality failed, or um, you didn't get back to me when you promised you you would." A lot of that is broken promises and so on. So. Um, as, my, as you're saying that, so many stories have come to mind where I've sat down with uh, unhappy families or patients about their experience in the hospital, uh, even outside of the hospital, where they felt that the, the health system let them down. They didn't feel they uh, their dignity was respected or they felt devalued or deserted. But
0: give us an idea yeah. of this hostage mentality. What does that specifically look like within this you know dissatisfaction.
2: Well, this would be a patient, for, for instance, who might uh, outside of the hospital be a community leader, maybe the CEO of a company, but finds themselves in the hospital out of their element. They're uncomfortable expressing their wishes because they don't understand the, the usual hierarchy, how things work. Uh, they normally might express, you know, uh, an opinion about their care or about the direction, but they're afraid to do so because they don't want to disrupt the flow and they don't want to disappoint or be disliked by the staff. So the classic example is the person who normally would speak up, who is now muted out of fear of being disliked or um, disgruntled in some way or to upset the staff. Now, That's the best description I can think of.
1: Greg, when when I first saw this article as a doctor, my first thought goes back to the times when we've had patients leave against medical advice, like we were kind of mm-hmm. discussing in the first quarter and universally we're like, well, it's definitely the patient's fault. It's not our fault. There's no way. You get to see the, the every side of it. Would you find that a lot of times it's legitimately the patient's been let down?
2: I, I do. And of course, you know, that's my role. And, uh, I, and I had a perfect example this week. I was a gentleman, uh, fairly young, uh, employed uh, with a family, who had uh, admittedly concerning neurologic symptoms for, for some time. So, so much so that he was admitted to the hospital for a workup. Uh, they didn't find anything serious, which should be good news, but, but at the same time, as he read his discharge summary, which really sort of downplayed any of his complaints and said, all it said is that I have an impingement of a nerve in my arm, uh, yet I had all these other symptoms that they didn't mention. Felt really that his story wasn't heard. Ah. And, and after that discharge had seen uh, several specialists And as he described these interactions, every one of them, as I heard it, I said, I believe it happened. He described calling uh, his specialist on the phone. And as the specialist was talking to him, he heard typing in the background. Um, He said, well, I guess they really weren't paying attention to me if they were typing notes as they were speaking with me on the telephone. He talked about email messages sent to his physician or physicians and and with the promise, "Oh, we'll get back to you right away or 24 hours. And 10 days later, still waiting to hear. Uh, As he listed every one of these events over the course of uh, several months, I was depressed. And with every complaint, I I knew that it was valid. I knew that what he was saying was the truth. And if we only had seen it from his point of view all along, we might have been able to respond differently because nobody wants to give that kind of care. But clearly, that's what we were doing. So those are not uncommon experiences for me.
0: So what characteristics of hostage bargaining syndrome did he or some of these other patients have that you've met with?
2: Well, I think he felt he finally had to speak up after several months. He he said, I play by the rules. I do everything that the doctor asks me. I'm a good patient that way. And I think through all of this, he tried not to be disruptive because he wanted, as I said, that I think the the core element of this is that you, you want to be liked by the caregiver. And I'll explain why that's so important. Uh, and he had done that to the point where he finally, then he finally gave up. So he had been bargaining all along, playing by the rules, okay. trying to be liked, trying and to these go These rules aren't healthy rules. Oh, not necessarily. Yeah. Uh, you know, why does he, uh, you know, you know, one would expect, you know, an immediate response. You know, if you're very concerned about your health, why, do, why does one say, well, I have to, you have to wait 24 hours to hear back from us. That would never work in some other industries. I can tell you that right now. If you called, uh, your computer crashed today and you called the IT team and you said, you know, we'll talk to you tomorrow. And you say, no, I got to do an interview on the radio tonight. I need my computer. That would never be satisfactory. Why in healthcare are some of those things acceptable? I yeah On a philosophical level, I mean, we offer healthcare as, as a wonderful uh, human relationship-based entity. Uh, and uh, sometimes we don't deliver on that. And that's where I think the bargaining comes along is, well, the stakes are very high, right, Tom and Andrew? I mean, your, your health, life or death, yes. disability, or the someone you love, the stakes are so high that um, the expectation for the delivery of care should be very high. And, um, you know, patients find themselves disappointed by that, or they're trying to, you know, as I said, I, I, this is what I often think, to be liked so that people will pay more attention to them or, um, you know, take care of their needs in a more effective way. You
1: know one one of the things you know we a lot of our listeners are in the medical field and and a lot of the mm-hmm. listeners are are not so hopefully to try and draw everybody in on the on the medical side of things I feel like gee whiz I think my patients tell me everything but we know that's not true because there's another term out in the literature talking about white coat silence how mm-hmm. how is that different than the hostage bargaining syndrome?
2: Well, I think white coat silence and and I don't think it's the white coat. I think you know my patients is the white coat the cause of white coat silence? I don't think so. Um, In fact, actually most studies support the use of the white coat, that uh, actually patients respond to the white coat as a sign of professionalism. And it's so historically associated with the profession which they generally want to trust. So they've done studies, for instance, in the ICU setting where they've shown uh, 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 outpatients or or just subjects, pictures of different kinds of clinicians. Some wearing white coats, some just wearing scrubs, others with a suit and a tie and so on it always seems to come out those with the white coat seems to get the most response for the most trustable clinician. I think when I hear the word white coat silence, I think it means the whole profession. It's the silence of those who are afraid to question the experts or afraid to buck the system to to pursue their an answer to the question because, again, there's this authority um, uh, t- differentiation that the, the clinician is the expert in, in your health and in In curing your disease or taking away your suffering. Um, And you're not the expert in that. And you're coming uh, sort of as the beggar to the, you know, to the table saying, you know, help me, I don't understand what's wrong with me. And you're afraid to speak up, you're afraid to be disruptive because of that.
0: So, Greg, where outside of medicine might people fall into this hostage situation? I, I'm thinking just in general, maybe situations where we want something and we don't have anything to offer the person that we're, quote, bargaining with. Is that true?
2: Right. Well, I think it, it probably occurs anytime there's a, a power differential where somebody has something that, that you need, an expertise or a service, um, and uh, you recognize that and respond. I certainly would do that when I see my dentist. Uh, so it's outside of medicine, but I want my dentist to like me when he starts the drill. Uh, I want him <laughs> to think I'm a compliant patient, and uh, that he wants to do that extra special thing for me. But I mean, we we could probably see the same thing in the law. You know, when we approach a lawyer, if we have a legal issue, uh, we're going to try to explain it, but we're going to want a lawyer who we think is on our side, and we're going to try to make them like us. They're you know, going to or try to convince them of our the rightness of our case. Uh, you know, so. You can go to a, ho- you know, a hotel um, and, you know, you're going to say, I want to really be good here. Maybe, you know, I want the, to be liked by the, uh, the manager here. So then in case I need service, I'll get it. I think if you're pulled over, you know, uh, after you go through a stop sign, you're going to want the police officer to, uh, to like. So there may be some, when they say bargaining, it means sometimes suppressing what your initial reaction might be, your initial questions or asserting your thoughts uh, so as to go along with the flow. So as to maybe help your case uh, have a, a, a more favorable outcome. Is, Does that if, make sense to both of you? I mean, I, it's, I, it, I'm it from a different point of view maybe than the article, but that's how I often see it.
1: No, I, I think that it makes a lot of sense. I, I joke with my wife sometimes if she's got a complaint at, at a restaurant for any reason, I say, let's just get our food first and then you can share the complaint. Yeah, instead of before we get our food.
2: Well, nobody wants to make a, you know, a lot of people don't want to make a fuss or be, you know, seen as the unlikable person or the, although some people don't seem to have any problem with that. But I think in, 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 in the article, Len Berry, the, the, uh, the chief author, I have had a relationship and talked to him about this. Uh, and I think he's very pleased that we're doing this this talk, actually. Len said he was inspired to do this, the, the, the entire essay-based uh, um on a conversation he had with a friend who was, again, a very prominent leader, usually quite outspoken and confident, but had a child who was ill and was in a children's hospital and started to describe how vulnerable they felt, how helpless, how they uh, would do anything for their child. And that sometimes meant not asking difficult questions because they didn't want to upset the physician's day. They didn't want to be seen as uh, you know, problematic parents. Um, and, this, you know, he reflected is, you know, and I think there was a good outcome. I hope there was a good outcome. But that afterwards, I was a whole different person uh, in that setting. Normally, I'm very uh, confident. I'll ask my questions. I'll advocate uh, for my child. But in that hospital setting, I felt very, uh, I I didn't feel empowered. I felt vulnerable. And quote, unquote, I felt kind of like a hostage.
1: How how often does this happen, Greg? Is this something that's in grayscale, where there's an element in most medical interactions? Or is this, you know, would you say this happens a fraction of the time? What's your insight there?
2: You no, know, I don't know that that's a great, great question. I don't know how much we've actually pursued it. I think for those of us who've practiced medicine, I did a fair amount of inpatient medicine through the years. I think I've observed it and, and been aware of it um, and, and hopefully responded appropriately. But I think, you know, it's one of the probably the great secrets is that patients probably would never express that. Or if they're angry, they often do it after the fact. We hear this constantly, though, from patients um, who even uh, put forward complaints. Please do not, um, you know, tell my doctor that I said this. Please don't let anybody know that I had a concern. Um, Because they're afraid that in the future it may affect their care, that they'll be seen as disruptive or, uh, you know, uh, not appreciative of the care. And somehow that will affect the care they get in the, in the future.
0: Does this hostage bargaining syndrome differ based on whether the hospital is urban or rural or the patients are old or young, better educated or not, more yeah. wealthy, less wealthy by culture?
2: Yeah. That's a great question. I think there would be some cultural differences. Uh, you know, in a rural area such as mine, I think there's still a lot more trust of the medical profession than you might see in a in a more urban or metropolitan area. But I think this is such a universal problem that um, you could go anywhere and and probably observe it. I think actually, if we interviewed patients after a hospital admission or even an outpatient interaction with the specialist, many of them would say that they were a little bit uncomfortable with the conversation. They didn't ask all their questions. They were a little bit shy. I think that's all part of the same syndrome. This, this, uh, uh, a little bit of a, you know, a threat by the authority of the person that they're meeting with, vulnerability because they have uh, something that has put them in a weakened situation, a concern, an embarrassment, an, an illness, um, and that affects things. I uh, I often reflect on uh, the work of Edmund Pellegrino. Some of our listeners yes. may know Ed Pellegrino. He was a wonderful Catholic physician, um, ethicist, uh, an internist by trade. He has some books out there. He had leadership and at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, I think even for a brief time as the president of Catholic University. So a highly respected physician philosopher. And uh, Dr. Pellegrino would say any patient who goes with an illness or, or disability to a physician is in a weakened position. There, there's a vulnerability. There's a lack of, of uh, equality, if you would, in the relationship, not in terms of intrinsic dignity, not in terms of that inherent dignity between the two two members, the doctor and the patient, but just based on the fact that one may have knowledge to cure and assist and the other lacks it. But pellegrino get the doctor has to make up for the differentiation. They have to act in a virtuous way to equalize the relationship.
0: So how do doctors contribute to hostage bargaining syndrome and how can we catch ourselves in that?
2: Well, first we have to look for the doctors who might actually enjoy that being the reality, that they're not questioned as much. So they you know the arrogant, and we have them—the arrogant oh. physician who kind of expects that to be the norm,
0: or to save time,
2: or to save time, or those who may hold on to their title or position as something deeply valuable to them, and uh, they don't want to be questioned. Uh, uh, they don't want to admit this might be the same clinician who may not want to admit an error, or uh, or so on. So they kind of there, there. are probably those who play into the paradigm very well. It takes a lot so, of time for me to answer your question, so. So what's an
0: examination me. of conscience that we healthcare professionals can do to see if we're doing this? That's a Catholic thing, right?
2: Ah, yeah. You know, I actually wrote an article about that and published it uh, some years ago. It was called 21 Questions, an Examination of Conscience for Doctors. Um, yeah, there's a number of things you can do. Um, some basic things. Uh, in, how did I How did I interact with the patient? How did I inquire about their, their concerns? Did I say... Uh, do you have any questions versus what are your questions? Yes. It's a great way of trying things differently. Did I stop myself from interrupting the patient? Let them finish their sentence. Did I even use my body language in such a way that they felt welcomed? Um, body language is critically important. It's, it's okay um, now with COVID. It's, uh, it's been a concern. But can I shake the hand of my patient, put my hand on their shoulder, even hug them if they're in a very difficult position? I... I recently gave a, a talk to our new residents on effective communication and human relationship. And I said, hey, really, this is the basis of healthcare." And I, I took the option of, of at the, the last slide, I showed a very famous photo of Pope Francis embracing a man with a disfiguring syndrome, neurofibromatosis. Yeah. And this man uh, was ignored in his hometown because of his severe disfigurement. But Pope Francis embraced him. And I try to leave the residents with this idea that um, whether they're physically disabled or not, they may be emotionally disabled, they're vulnerable, they're ill, they're scared. Uh, we have to be willing to embrace them in, in any way that, they're, that that is acceptable to them to reduce their fear and anxieties uh, about their, their condition.
1: Greg, you know, one of the things you had mentioned is doctors, kind of a stereotype, but they do a lot of times have a tendency to be arrogant and it is easy to hide behind some of the pomp and circumstance. You know, that mm-hmm. at the same time, we, we talk about things being system problems. That, that's a big idea in healthcare is to what extent is this a system issue as opposed to individual bad apples?
2: Right. You know,
1: is there an element of that going on as well?
2: Sure. I, I As you're saying system, Andrew, I'm sort of reflecting on that. Uh, the whole biomedical system was set up in a very hierarchical function. And maybe you need that to be effective when, when things need to be Dressed in a critical way, but the whole idea of physicians' orders and visiting hours and uh, the whole thing is set up in a, in a very uh, organized way, which clearly shows you who's at the top of the uh, decision chain and who's really in charge. Uh, but even the language we used in medicine for many years and still use sort of puts the patient in this vulnerable or less than important. I want to say less than important, but in a in a in a less powerful position. Think about the last time you did a history and physical. And use the word, the patient denies shortness of breath, but admits to abdominal pain. It's almost like the patient is on trial for something. They're simply there because they don't feel well, but they have to admit to something and deny something else. That sounds like a trial, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So a lot of our history in medicine, we have to be aware of that, that we've created systems that actually do not empower the patient and preserve the idea of the physician and the medical team as the lead. This is You're in our house now. Uh, You know, you're on our turf.
0: Well, we're going to take a break now and come back and talk about uh, how some Catholic ideas are related to what we're talking about here on Dr. Doctor with Greg Burke from Geisinger Health System.
1: And we're back with Dr. Doctor. Very good discussion today with Dr. Greg Burke, talking about how patients can sometimes feel trapped, even like hostages in healthcare interactions. And so, Greg, you know, off off the air, we were kind of talking, I, there's a lot of pressure on doctors. Um, you got to see X number of people a day, and usually that X is not up to you. And mm-hmm. either you're trying to save time, you're trying to get by. I find frequently it's like maybe two or three patients that will make your other 30 patients wait for an hour if you give them all the time they want. It, to, to what extent, you know, time being one of those things, do doctors have an incentive to facilitate patients being silent and not getting
2: their questions answered. Oh, that's a great, great point, Andrew, and I'm sure it happens all the time. Uh, you look at the patient's face and you can sense they're going to ask a question and you quickly move on to avoid it. I'm sure all of us have done that, or if the fear that if you let them go on, it'll never stop. Uh, I think it's kind of nice to know the actual research and communications here would say that some small maneuvers that don't take a lot of time, making good eye contact, Asking open-ended questions early on, connecting with the patient, uh, you know, in an emotional way quickly, actually may only add a minute to the visit, but the patient will perceive that you really were in tune with them. So like I said, asking an open-ended question, making some sort of connection with them personally as a human, uh, making good eye contact, sitting down in the room as you're visiting them in the hospital, as opposed to standing over the bed. All of those things have been studied by communication experts, and they don't take a lot of time, and they actually, the, the patient will feel that they've been more heard and listened to. So, to my you know, clinician colleagues, some very simple things you can do, you know, commit to sit and ask an open-ended <laughs> question.
0: Great advice, Greg. And as I promised before the break, we wanted to look at how do some of you know our Catholic principles of treating people uh, enter into you know this concept called shared decision making, which is the recommended. Uh, antidote or treatment for hostage bargaining syndrome.
2: Sure. So you know, shared decision making means that any major medical decision is truly a shared act. It's not fully the autonomous act of the patient because we're not—we're simply not a, a distribution center where somebody comes in and says, "I'd like a little bit of this, a little bit of chemo, but no surgery." And and this—that's that's inappropriate. But it's also not a paternalistic system where the doctor says, "This is what you're going to get, no questions asked." Uh, You know, this is the the treatment I recommend. Therefore, if you don't want it, just leave. That's not appropriate either. Somewhere in the middle, and this is very consistent with Catholic, I think, theology is recognizing the dignity of the patient, the right to their autonomous view of their health and assessing their own burdens and benefits, but also the duty of the physician uh, to be truthful with the patient, to take the time to explain the pros and cons, and to be their advocate and always have their benefit as the reason you're there whether it's their physical benefit their physiology their mental psychology even their spiritual life that you always are committed to their benefit and then in the middle you have the discussion and come to a shared decision
1: now in in the catholic church we have a word for that right or two words human dignity
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: right how how can we explain this to people who don't appreciate human dignity or to secular people is this something that they're going to recognize just from their conscience
2: I think, you know, in some ways, autonomy is a recognition of human dignity, that every person has a right to express what they think is done, you know, in terms of their health. It is a recognition. Uh, But but taking it to the next level, I think, is going to be part of the challenge. And that's where we were were talking on the break a little bit about the importance of emotional IQ and kindness and empathy. And there is, I mean, an argument to be made that some of these things can be learned. Um, Maybe kindness you get in kindergarten, but learning to think empathy, which is a very Catholic thing, to see the other person's pain and experience it enough that you want to help it. I think those are the things we could share, even with a secular point of view that would be appealing. Um, I think these are fundamental human experiences and values. And I think differentiating between inherent dignity, which we all have, and attributed dignity, which some of us, due to illness or socioeconomic status, may lack, that's where I think the position kind of comes in and tries to equalize that relationship. So everybody is treated in a fair way.
0: Trust is essential to good communication mm-hmm. between patients and doctors. What are some of the key ways, um, if you haven't discussed them already, that we can yeah. either lose trust with patients or gain trust with patients and vice versa, patients with physicians?
2: Sure. So, yeah, I think you're right. Trust is the probably the most fundamental part of the relationship. So how do you build trust? One is to have integrity, you know, so that you always tell the truth to the patient. If you say you're going to do something, by golly, follow through with it. If you say, I'm going to get back to you with the CAT scan as soon as I get the results, try to make every effort to do that. So you have to have credibility. You have to be able to walk the walk that what you say is is, is consistent. To show empathy, to let them know not to be afraid to share some of your own worries and concerns or your own experiences through self-disclosure is another way that builds trust. Um, and using words that are not humiliating or embarrassing, but, you know, embolden the patient or make them feel good. And getting to them. this is so essential, Tom, getting just to know them as a human being. Yes. I never start with the HPI in the classic sense. I never ask what's the chief complaint or why you're here. The first question I ask is, where are you from? What do you do? What's your family like? Then we'll get to the chief complaint. Unless you're, you know, having crushing chest pain, that's a whole different story.
1: Yeah. You know, <laughs> I- It's my down dump. <laughs> One of the things that yeah. struck me in the article yeah. was that patients will use compassion and communication as a surrogate for knowledge base. Because doctors always, you you had shared off the air, Greg, that mm-hmm. doctors always think the most important thing is to be up to date on my CME. I know the standard of care. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, patients really don't care about a lot of that in general. They, they oh, care about yeah. if they they understand you and you understand them. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. I think there's an understanding, and it's true with anybody we interact with. If we trust them, we generally feel they're going to act in our best interest. They wouldn't do anything to harm us. You know, the first principle of medicine we learn, you know, primum non nocere, first do no harm. If you think someone is compassionate and trustworthy, then you're going to assume they're going to learn about your case, that they're probably compulsive enough to study medicine well and stay up to date with with the latest. In fact, in my examination of conscience some years ago, I put that down as one of the things. Am I staying current with, you know, the science of medicine, the best practice in the literature?
0: Greg, here's a scenario I come across frequently where patients seem to not want shared decision making. So I operate on patients' faces. A common area is the nose. They'll have a hole on their nose and they'll have an option between healing on its own or doing a, a flap reconstruction, which is like a you know, making a jigsaw Mm -hmm. puzzle and putting the pieces back together. And they'll just say, tell me what to do, doc. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'll say, well, you know, it depends what you want. You know, I'll go, no, just tell me what to do. Uh, What do you recommend in scenarios like that?
2: Well, Sometimes you may then tell them what to do. I've always (laughs) believed that uh, actually one of the great, I think, assets of a really good doctor is flexibility. And I've often said I try to become the doctor, the patient wants me to be. So I have sure. patients of mine who are college professors, triple boarded. I have physician colleagues that are my patient. And I have, as you say, the little old lady from the small you know, town who you know has never left more than 20 miles from her place of birth. And um, if that college professor wants me to go academic and talk about the literature and have a 15-minute discussion on whether to do a PSA blood test, I'm happy with that. If that little old lady... Just says, Doc, I just trust you. What would you do in this setting? Um, then I'll I'll take that role and I'll be like a 1940s doctor and say, you know, Charlotte, we're moving ahead. You're gonna get the surgery. <laughs> I think it's okay to sometimes be the doctor that patients want. That's that's a with ever, with we can never compromise your values or your best medical judgment or your ethics, but your style can change to meet the patient's needs, whatever they are. I remember in a, many years ago in the nursing home. A patient would not make up a code status decision and she just kept looking at me and saying it's your choice mm-hmm. and finally i i finally acquiesced and said all right i'll decide what i think you would be best for you or what you would want and that's the order and she would not give an answer to that she said it's your decision so i think you know many ethicists right that you can't do that well what other choice did i have um i had to act in her best interest and she her shared decision with me was, you decide for. Him. Yeah, That was her shared decision moment.
1: You know, as, as I'm listening to this conversation, I'm afraid some of the medical folks who might be listening say, gee whiz, it sounds like it's all our fault. It's on all of us to fix it. And uh, if you're a bad apple, you're really in trouble. Um, to, to what extent, I guess, are there also incentives mm-hmm. besides do better? You know, is there an incentive in regard to litigation? Yes, well, yeah. With shared yes, decision-making.
2: I think there's a couple incentives. One is we have found evidence that patients, uh, physicians who have great patient relationships are happier in their practice. We do know that 70% of malpractice suits, when you really get down to it, the patient or family states they felt they were devalued, deserted uh, in some way. So the classic idea of the family doctor, even without great competence, who's well-loved in the small town, almost never gets sued. Because uh, the patient will say, I would never sue him. He's my friend. Uh, you know that's based on relationship, um, and I'm not I'm not here to say it's all the doctors. Fault. I think you know my colleagues, the vast majority of them. I'm often impressed how how great many physicians are. Most physicians are wonderful people, and some patients are challenging. And I've also been in discussions where I've dismissed patients from the medical practice or told them you can't come here anymore because patients you know who cross certain boundaries or egregious behavior. Um, have to also respect the rights of the physician or the staff to be treated well so it's not a one-way street i mean i think we have a higher burden we're supposed to take care of everybody who comes our way we can't judge uh even if their behaviors are very uh offensive we have to try to treat everybody that's a basic medical oath but we don't have to be abused either so there are times where i've supported our physicians and said no you don't have to take that from a particular patient Uh, they're going to be dismissed from the practice Um, so it's a balancing act
1: Greg, we got about seven minutes left. Let's get down to the brass tacks. If I'm a patient and I felt that way before and I'm going to have to go back to the hospital in the future at some point, what can I do different next time?
2: Well, I think, you know, there's certain some helpful things and this may make some of the docs a little uncomfortable say, so, well, there's going to take time. But I think if you do it up front and build that relationship and trust, it'll actually save you time down the line. Uh, so one is that the, the family or the patient can write down their questions so they remember what they are and not be satisfied if all of them aren't addressed. They have every right to identify who the captain of the ship is. In modern hospital care, with the development of the hospitalist movement and so many specialists, I've heard it said that in the course of 24 hours, 70 people enter a patient's room. Um, when you brought in the environmental services and the, the, clini- the clinicians and the specialists and the nurses, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, I think they have to know who the captain of the ship is, who, who's in charge. They should be able to express every question with an expectation that someone will answer it. That they should be uh, have the expectation that, that the physician asks permission to do things to examine them. These are things that I think are sort of fundamental. They should also be open to, to sharing gratitude. If the, it's okay to also say, "Doc, I really appreciate all you did for me today," or the nurse uh, here was fantastic, or the food was great, uh, that goes a long way too. So um, you know, standing up early on and saying, "I have questions. I want. I want to know who's the captain. I want to." express myself um, in a respectful way, not taking away your expertise, but just recognizing who I am and and that this is what I would expect, I think is a good start.
0: And you said that patients can be free to identify things that might help improve their own care, like some patients like quiet better than others.
2: Absolutely. Essentially, they did a study at uh, the Midwest some years ago. They created a perfectly quiet hospital on a unit, and the complaints went up, Patients felt they were abandoned. So a little bit of noise, a little bit of noise is not a bad thing in the hospital. You know, at least you know there's somebody around. But yeah, I mean all of those things. And I've often said that healthcare, which we, we really advertise ourselves as being very important to you, it's about life and death. We should be the most hospitable place in the world. We should be a five star hotel if we really stood up to what we claim we we're there to do.
0: So Andrew asked about what can patients do? Well, what can family members do? Either parents of children who are mm-hmm. patients or uh, a family member, especially of somebody who's older and hospitalized, what, what can they do to contribute to their loved one's care?
2: I think they have to try to identify who on the team is the main leader and then develop a relationship with them. I think, again, you know, not being uh, tame about asking the questions that, that are so important to them Sometimes building alliances with other members of the team, including the nurses, can be very helpful. You know, the nurses are you know, standing at that bedside many more hours than the docs and can be great resources as well. And if they don't completely understand everything, ask the doctor, where can I find more information? What's a trustable source? Uh, can you help me with this? And it can be done in a very respectful pattern, as, as a, a pattern that, that sees each other as equals in that. I think many doctors would respond to that. They should not be turned off by that at all.
1: And I guess we've talked a lot about what the doctors can do better. Is there anything we can do better? You know, I'm, I'm working primarily in the outpatient setting Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's maybe a little bit more time sensitive than the inpatient, just because the, the patients are going to be mad if I make them late for whatever their next appointment is. Is there anything I can do better in the outpatient setting to improve this?
2: Well, one of the things that's been clearly shown is if you are running late, simply recognizing it and apologizing for it goes a long way. A lot of docs don't do that, um, or just poking your head in the door and say, I'm running a little bit late. Most patients are very understanding that doctors are busy. It's just that moment that when you have with them, that you make it real and you make it, you make it memorable. You look them in the eye, you shake their hand, you say, Joe, I'm really happy you made it here today. How are the kids doing? Make a human connection. You'll see them relax. Their body language changes. Um, they know that you know that they're human and that you actually care about them, and you're, you know, dedicated to their to their good. And that's, you know, simply to, to use Thomas Aquinas' term, simply to love your patients, which just means to desire their good in all things. And that's a pretty, a, a very Catholic thing to do.
0: If somebody's going to be hospitalized, or they know somebody close to them who is, are there any resources they can go to to try to bone up on how to get the most effective care possible.
2: Well, it depends, you know, they can certainly go to the hospital website and learn a lot about hospital policy and how it's set up. Um, they can also try to learn about the disease and I well, there's great danger here of course many doctors don't do the internet se- search, you <laughs> may get, you know, bad information. That's why I think it's important early on say, "Well, doc, where would where can I find some good information on that disease so that you're prepared about the whole process?" Um, yeah, I mean it's a challenge because you know a lot of hospitals don't really explain very well how the whole system works until you arrive. And uh, COVID has really put a, a really you know a, a really sore spot with a lot of people with changing guidelines and such and visitations and visitation rules. But uh, hopefully we'll get back to a better place soon.
1: If, Greg, if we were to leave people with homework to get better at this, what what would you suggest that they go and do?
2: Well, I think one maybe having an inventory of the things that are most important to them. So that could be, you know, if I were to have a disease, who do I want to speak for me if I can't speak for myself? Uh, How do I choose my doctor and the system, the hospital system that I choose to go to? What are the values that I find there? I'm going to interview my friends and neighbors to hear about their experiences. Now we can go online. Many health systems now publish the online comments uh, and scores of the doctors and how they're rated by patient experience. So they can, you can be, and that's, I forget the latest study, but I think it's 60 or 70% of Americans are doing that now anyway, to be a discerning shopper for your health care uh, and knowing what really val what, what your real values are and making that clear up front. Uh, you know, there'll we'll always be a little bit of vulnerability with illness and, um, and if you're suffering from something. Um, but just always to remember that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, uh, you're in any way in a, in a weakened position when it comes to the relationship.
0: Greg? Thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor to talk about something that uh, many people aren't aware of. I think you're going to help improve a lot of hospital experiences.
2: Thanks so much, Tom and Andrew.
1: And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia
0: question related to barriers to optimal patient care. Yep. Doctors often feel rushed because we have to spend so much time documenting. And in one study of primary care doctors, they followed them around people with stopwatches or, well, I guess they have electronic ones. They probably don't have stopwatches anymore and looking, how are they spending their time during the day? So for each hour that a doctor spends with a patient, how many hours in this study that they spend documenting on a computer or on paper? What's your answer? Can't hear you. Yes, that's right. You, you who said two hours. That's right. Two hours documenting for everyone, every one hour with a patient, which makes it very challenging. What do you think about that, Andrew? Does not surprise me a bit. And I mean, this is,
1: time is probably the number one thing that doctors and patients want to fight about. (laughs) If if there was something that is an unfought battle, I had a patient one time who I, I care for deeply, but I walked into the room and she held up her cell phone and said, Forty-five minutes. That's how long I've been waiting for you. I'm going to set the timer now to see how long you're in here.
2: And then oh she said it again.
0: Goodness. And that's now how I really our visit, set up a great relationship.
1: Yeah, that's how the visits start. Now that's a person I, I, I do really like, and the relationship's improved. But there is a lot of times so where patients see you for you know 15 minutes, and they assume like, well, I would have taken more time. Statistically, based on this study, that doctor spent 45 minutes on you but you're only with him 15 because he's got to do all the computer stuff. And you can talk to the doctors who used to chart on paper and now do computers, how many fewer patients they can see. And so
0: I totally believe it. So Andrew, what are your top three takeaways from Greg's wonderful discussion? Yeah, I'd say, you know, the first one would be for the
1: patients. Uh, And it would be, do not be afraid to make sure that you're heard. Uh, Greg mentioned, and Tom, you've taught me before, I always ask patients to write down your questions and bring the list. And if you see a list of 47 questions or three (laughs) questions, I'll know how to budget our time in answering those questions. Yes. Yes. Um, So write them down and do not be afraid to to ask questions. And if you get shut down, get a different doctor. That's totally okay. Number two. Number two, uh, two and three are for the doctors and the healthcare people. Number two would be communication is the foundation of good healthcare. Greg said that. And even little things between the body language and not saying, do you have questions, which can be heard of as dismissive, saying, this is complicated. What questions do you have? What other questions do you have? That's so much more opening and it's gonna build a better relationship. And then number three is the trust flexibility dyad that Greg commented on. You got different patients and they want different things from you. St. Paul says we should be all things to all people and that's our goal. And so I think especially in healthcare, as much as you can tailor to the desires of that patient
0: in what they're looking for, you're going to have a better relationship. That is another episode in the can, as they say. Actually, I think that was an old video thing, so never mind that. But thank you, listeners, for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We invite you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend, and please ask your friend to listen to us on their favorite podcast app.
1: Yeah, I, I think the radio shows go to the cloud now. So that's there you another go. one in the cloud. Another one in the cloud, thanks. <laughs> hey, when rain. When you're in the cloud up there, be sure to rate and review our show <laughs> to help new listeners find us. You can also find all of our old episodes. we got a lot of them on topics you're interested in at our website, drdoctor.org. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with us here at Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Malali signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not
2: necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College
1: text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form
0: at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past
2: episodes at DrDoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.